This is Coda Radio, episode 449, for January 17th, 2022. Hello, friends, and welcome back to Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show, taking a pragmatic look at the art and the business of software development and the world of technology. My name is Chris, and joining us right now, right at his microphone, it's our host, Mr. Dominic. Hello, Mike. Hello, hello, hello. Oh, listen to you. You sound good. You sound strong. You sound well-fed. I'm well-fed. I'm on 64 gigs of RAM on my Pangolin. Oh! I am rocking it out. As my son would say, I am rocking this party. Let's go. That's what my son says all the time. Everything's let's go. I think it's a YouTube thing. Mine is uh, let's rock. The, he, he saw Sing, the old one, the first one. Uh-huh. And I guess somebody must say, let's rock this party. Okay. All right. Okay. Now, I was just making references to here I am scrolling on my Twitter, and Twitter really wants me to see your delicious steak that you're grilling up these days. It was epic. I kind of feel like you're on a roll with the food. Are, have you entered a new phase of like uh, cooking? Is this a, like a, our buddy Brent? He likes to cook to like clear his mind, right? He gets zen when he's cooking. I love grilling. And since I live in Florida, otherwise known as, is it summer still? Is it always summer there? I don't. I can't remember the last time I saw the sky, to be honest with you. I put on a sweater and long pants because it was 60 degrees. You bastard. And it wasn't just a sweater. Can we still say this? It was full on Cosby sweater. Like it it was, <laughs> it wasn't like a light little thing. No, it was. I. Well, can I just say that I really like that visual? <laughs> me, me and my Cosby sweater grilling. Yes. 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 And, and I slept in the, in the coder rope, which I will say for heat retention is what you want. Oh, yeah. You can also wrap an Xbox 360 in it. People who come visit me at the studio have to just live with the fact that I'm rocking a robe all the time. Well, they just got to get their heads around that because it's, it's what's happening. So we got some emails into the show from last week's episode. We kind of were giving the Wall Street Journal a hard time for saying that Apple was bullying people with the blue dots in iMessage. Well, Liam writes in and he says the green shame is real. He says, hey, geezers. As someone who went to high school the post in the post-iPhone world, I can confirm the green bubble bullying does exist. For the clicks that care, iPhones are a status symbol. And in some people's eyes, you'll be seen as, quote, a poor if you don't send blue bubbles. He goes on to point out that, yeah, of course, SMS and MMS is a huge disaster. Google is incompetent. But he wraps it up with this. It's Americans' refusals to abandon SMS. Apple wanted to do more than SMS offered and saw a fantastic way to market their platform. Google wanted to copy their success, but got bored after a few years. The problem with both platforms is SMS was still dragged along to communicate with each other. (laughs) I've managed to convert most of my friends to Telegram over the years, but I doubt most Americans will ever switch away from SMS, iMessage, or whatever a big platform slash market buys next. We had several in this regard, but we had one more that I thought we should touch on. Isn't people rejecting green bubbles, aren't they actually rejecting the crappy functionality of SMS? Isn't that what's actually happening? And it's represented as a green bubble, and perhaps they don't understand that it's the show that is SMS. But that's really what's happening is consumers are saying, you're degrading our experience. We want everyone to have a blue bubble. And what they're really saying is we don't want anybody using SMS. I mean, teenagers, I know a lot's changed in the world, but teenagers are still kind of dicks right and always have been so if it wasn't this i think they would just find something else i mean i remember when i was a kid uh the bmx biking was like the new thing 
right? You know, the Dave Mira, all that kind of stuff. Sure. The rich kids like had the whatever. I don't remember the name of the brand right now, but the brand name bike, right? Whatever the, you know, the fancy bike was, whatever Tony Hawk's brand of skateboard, all that kind of crap. And the normal kids had like Walmart, right? <laughs> like Mongoose was the Walmart brand. I guess I feel like kids are just jerks and are going to make fun of kids who don't have what they have. There is an element of that. So uh, Rundle wrote in and said, you know, it's really bad in the group chats. One-on-one, you know, it's not so bad. The platforms can kind of coexist. But in group chats, that's kind of where the whole bullying dynamic gets created because it's sort of, it's an inclusion issue where some don't really get to participate and some even get excluded from a group chat because they don't have the functionality. And we also had a listener write in that said that they are aware of stories where teenagers threaten self-harm if they didn't get iPhones because it's, there's so much social pressure around this. The general sentiment was you and I were just not young enough to appreciate how much of a real issue this is. But I'm still not convinced by any of these emails that Apple necessarily has a special blame here. First of all, they invested billions to make their brand kind of a prestigious brand. And they built a good user experience. And what's the point of doing all that if not to leverage it all to create something that people like more than SMS? Google wishes they could do this, right? They wish they were in this position. And they absolutely would be trying to keep people on their own chat platform if they could. And since we've been on the air, they've launched two more chat platforms. So, (laughs) (laughs) You know, what would obviously solve this, and I think would be a very savvy move on Apple's part, is release an iMessage app for Android. I know there was those emails where they debated it, and that's where some of this bullying angle comes from. So I'm in this place where, you know, we had a few listeners who were kind of like, okay, old guys, but like, this is upsetting and it's bad for us. And like, I don't want to like poop on their experiences here, but is this not the same thing? And I can use an example because I, there's a teenage girl who lives in my house and I now understand the horror that is that, you know, who has the coach bag versus the uh, insert generic target brand here, right? Mm. Isn't it like the same thing or just like, you know, who has the PS5 and who ha- it, it's feel, it just feels like normal kid of crap that I'm happy to blame Apple for lots of stuff. But this is like they did a good job. They made the luxury version of the product. And now you're asking them to not be a luxury brand. It's like, would you ask Neiman Marcus to be more like Walmart? Because like Neiman Marcus is fancy and people might be snooty about it. One aspect of this is having kids myself. I've I've watched them as they get older become aware of brands. You know, they kind of go from being completely oblivious to brands or such a thing to becoming aware of brands. And then in some cases, giving a lot of thought of, well, what brands do I like? You know, that's an an interesting psychological thing that they go through where they start kind of attaching themselves to different brands as time goes on and thinking about it from that perspective. So I I can understand the cultural issue there. But the other thing that's difficult here is if it's that big of an issue, well, then, I mean... Like, I got my kids an iPod Touch on eBay for 80 bucks. An iPhone XR is still a fantastic phone. It's going to get updates for years. You can get it for $180 on eBay. I don't even really buy the price argument, really. I can only really understand two reasons why people wouldn't do it. Philosophical, they refuse to participate in Apple. Or they don't know. They're uneducated. They are an uneducated consumer. and that is rife with issues. I could think of another reason, actually. There's for a kid. I know this is like blasphemy, especially for a tech dude. I don't, and maybe I'll eat my words. I don't 
know that giving young kids smartphones is appropriate. But if they're on an Android device and they have green bubbles, I think that's already but that that hurdle's already been Well, you've already right, you've okay, you've already crossed that line. Yeah. Then when does it stop? Are you buying like a bootleg console now? Like and you saw you saw the email that the listener wrote in that said that uh they know of a kid that got a brand new brand new Galaxy and they wanted to take him back for an iPhone. I don't know. I mean, Apple did a good job with branding. I, I Yeah, I'm still struggling. It feels really like Google blew it and Apple didn't. Uh, and now what happens is, is people kind of, I hate this, but human nature seems to be to like use shame to get people to adopt the cultural norms. And it's gross, but what we, we and we kind of notice it when it happens in a new area. But we kind of turn a blind eye once we've all kind of adopted that new norm and we don't really pay attention and notice it anymore. And I don't like it at all. And I think in part why things like WhatsApp and Telegram do really well. And I think one of the reasons why they do really well outside the States is because SMS and Americans, it was a weird adoption with texting. It took us a while to get it. And when we finally did get it, it was SMS that stuck where other nations kind of took cellular technology to a new level faster. They adopted it at a different point. And they adopted messaging a lot faster as well. And so when something like WhatsApp or Telegram comes along, they're, they're really proficient in these domains where Americans are kind of stuck in the early days of cell with our carriers, with the way we treat our phones, all of it. In fact, there's even still really just unspoken weird norms between generations. I'm shocked when my phone just rings and somebody's calling me out of nowhere, which is generally somebody, one of the older members of my family, because anybody my age usually sends me a text first. Say, hey, are you around? Can we chat? You know, we usually do that kind of thing. And then, you know, and my kids, my kids, they, they don't really ever call each other unless they're gaming. And then they FaceTime each other. It's like the, they have the weird, they're always texting unless it's gaming time. <laughs> I've noticed that it's so strange to me. The solution is, is to educate people to get off of any of these proprietary platform specific chat applications. Oh, dude. Do some research, find the one that works for you and move. I, you know, it just takes somebody in your, in your group to have a little leadership. We've drugged people between Viber and Slack and Telegram. I mean, like we, you know, it's just, you got to just set a path and get people to move. I know it's, it sounds impossible, especially with kids. I'm being idealistic there, but Discord has gotten, has picked up a lot of this too. Yeah. You know, Discord's benefited a lot. So we're seeing a real fracturing in the market. People, I think around our age, at least in my family and kind of friend group are using like Slack and, uh, or teams literally depending on what their, their organization bought. Right. There's weirdos like me and you who still use IRC, but that's such a dying. I mean, but all the younger folks that I know, especially my like teenagers, like relatives, they're in Discord all damn day, all day. And it's like their one program, Discord, their one chat program. Yeah, It's Slack for all the casuals. All right. Listener Chris writes in, and we were talking last week about Faker.js and, and Color.js and how they took down the GitHub account and kind of brought us onto the topic of how we've really more and more over the years landed on if you really need something, you got to host it yourself. And listener Chris writes, I agree, but isn't there a way to enjoy the best of both worlds? Like, for example, put your code up on GitHub and then mirror it on your own instance with GitLab or GitT or whatever you use so that when they do take it down, it's their loss, not yours. Is there a sweet spot? When I thought about this question, I tried to zoom it out to, you know, Small operations, but operations like yours and my mine have infrastructure, you know, so that means more infrastructure. Where do you draw the line? Something I've been thinking about recently, because we're, we're rebuilding a couple of our servers here at the studio, we have nearly 45 servers in the cloud and we have 
one server now and we're going to two, maybe even three servers here in the studio for storage purposes, just to kind of cache stuff locally. So I, my infrastructure and how much I'm willing to invest in all of this and where I allocate, that's all been on my mind recently, especially, I guess, because it's the beginning of the year and I'm thinking like, okay, this is the time to really sort this out. You know, more and more, I find myself going more towards self-hosting. I used to be cloud all the things. Now I'm kind of getting, well, but, you know, in the cloud, somebody else ultimately holds the data and gets to decide when, if ever things get deleted. Hint, it's almost never. You have to pay an ongoing fee. And if you have the expertise at some point, so like I self-host GitLab, right? And it just ends up being cheaper for what I need than using um, GitHub, uh, you know, enterprise. Now, granted, I sub hope GitLab CE, so that's whatever. The big thing, I think, is my email. And the problem with that, it's so hard to get out of Google for a business once you've been in it for years that I don't even know how I would do that migration. Uh, yeah, I hear you on that. Because there's like documents, there's contracts, there's documentation. and You mess the DNS up and you don't get email for a couple of days. Right. Well, and it's just having that searchability and drive, honestly, to be like, you know, this customer came back from like a year and a half ago and they want an update. I don't even remember like this, you know, what we did, right? What the configuration was. So being able to go and see, oh, okay, so this is running like Python, whatever, Rails, whatever, go from there. Having said that, I I find myself more and more kind of creeped out <laughs> by just the panopticon I appear to be living in. I think if I were to do it all over again, if there was like a, you know, we did Alice in Wonderland this time. So let's say like a, a Wizard of Oz themed company. It probably would be self-hosted. And I would listen to self-hosted every week to get my tips. hey self-hosted.show. I have a lot more comfort with something that, say, I host up on Linode that I build or install the application and I run a thing there than something where I go to a company and I pay a service for that application. I think in part because it feels more like my own infrastructure. But where it gets tricky for me is the sweet spot for self-hosting is things that require a lot of storage, or we're also considering doing some of our encoding here, just because then we don't even have to bring the files up to the cloud. We can just do it all here, which would have some advantages. So we're looking at that kind of workflow stuff and where to kind of split the difference. You know, over the night, one of the services that is hosted on, I don't want to out them because they're friends of the show. Our website's old. It's been running on this service for, I don't know, 12 years. You know, it's it's old school. Friend of the network set it up for us over there. Really helped us out a lot over the years. But there was like an explosion in Canada last night. And it took out their fiber lines to their data center. So the Jupiter Broadcasting website was down from about the point we published Linux Unplugged until about 4 a.m. this morning. That stinks, right? And it's like one point of failure, and it's on an old stack. And my thought right there was, you know, if I was self-hosting this, I would just probably spin this up on another Linode in a different area or something. Or I would, you know, fire it up here and open up the port, right? Like, you have that kind of self control and governance when you have that like there's not much i could do other than well i couldn't the backups are stored there too actually now that i think about it <laughs> that's not good but so yeah i don't even really have a 
couldn't really even get to the backup. It started on a different system, but you still have to connect to the same data center. So yeah, there's not much I could do. And I just had to wait it out. And, you know, considering an explosion knocked it out and they, you know, they got it back up within 24 hours, I suppose that's a good thing. But it made me think a little bit about in the future, when we address that old infrastructure, which we're going to try to do this year, how do I really want to run it? And do I want to self-host? And I think I do. I think for that, for our website, I think I do. Because I want to do something a lot simpler, too. So it shouldn't be a big bunch of overhead. I don't know. I'm still on the fence. I'd like to know what the audience thinks, too. Yeah. One last email before we wrap up the feedback section. Josh writes in, hey, guys, I recently found out about JetBrains' new VS Code competitor, Fleet. Right now it's in closed beta, but there's a few videos out there showcasing it. What are your thoughts on it? Do you think it'll replace VS Code for you guys? Keep up the good show, Josh. Would you be willing to give JetBrains text editor, it's an IDE really, a go? Uh, yeah, I'm definitely going to try it out. Am I, you know, am I going to drop VS Code? Probably not. Uh, probably not. I mean, I'm always looking for the best tool for the job. Uh, you know, as we've said for going on 13 years now. I, I, I have to say for a paid tool, they have a hell of a bar to hit. Yeah. Since VS Code has effectively re- replaced PyCharm and RubyMine for me, which are also JetBrain products. And clearly, they need a Mario extension, you know, to compete with VS Code. Yes. Did you see yeah. that tweet? That was all. <laughs> That's so great. So for, and I, I'm a, I'll be amazed if Nintendo hasn't DMCA'd it yet, but that you can place the original Mario Brothers in VS Code. It's a TypeScript extension. Yeah, that's pretty great. Okay. So there's like weird innovation and competition going on in the text editor and Honestly, the terminal space, I didn't even put this in the doc because I was lazy today, but I'm using a, a, a terminal that Wes recommended called Tabby when I'm on Linux. It's pretty good. And I'm using Warp on Mac. I don't know what's going on, but DevTools have never been better. So to answer the writer's question, yeah, I'm definitely going to try Fleet. And if it hits a you know, a spot that I need it, I'll, I'll use it. I mean, it's, I have no you know like weird loyalty to VS Code. I just... You know, the big caveat is VS Code is free. Yeah, the real question is, what does it take now to unseat VS Code? How how good does the product have to be? They do have a few things in here. They have it. They have it built in to connect to remote remote machines and do like the build on a remote machine. They have Google Docs like integration, so you can create a shared workspace. You can have people join yours. Real time collaboration in there, that kind of stuff. It's all integrated. Hmm. And of course, they write built from scratch based on 20 years of our experience developing IDEs. And of course, they've baked in IntelliJ, so that's all in there. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a Java editor, editor, right? Like all their products are, so that's fine, I guess. VS Code is like, I don't know. I It just seems like such a high par. Yeah. And I really want it to work. But I'm, I'm trying to think, like, what would they have to... Like, okay, the only annoying thing in VS Code is the same annoying thing I think all electron apps have on Linux that it doesn't seem like it's zoomed in right. It's always seems small. Thank you. Freaking thank you. I feel like I'm an old man going into the accessibility and it's still not all, even when I crank it up, it's still not appropriate. It's something not right. It's fine on Mac, which is weird. It's like, fine. It adopts the system. But on Linux, like I, I ended up pumping the font up until I realized there's just a, it's like control plus to zoom in the editor section, and then it looks like it makes sense. You got to do both, right? You got to pump the font a little bit and then pop up the whole UI one. But then, 
Sometimes I swear to God, it runs slower when you do that. It does. I shouldn't have said anything. But I, I, I have a feeling that's one of those like weird Linux issues where the people like Electron just doesn't really care. Here's what they say about Fleet in the frequently asked questions. The question is, will Fleet be open source? Here's their answer. <laughs> no. We are considering open sourcing parts of the product or the technology behind it. Stay tuned for details. Doesn't that sound like open core? <laughs> yeah, well, no, we can't call it that. No. They're going to open source enough that people build extension because that's really the strength of VS Code, right? Is that somebody literally took the time to write a Mario extension. Yeah. God bless them. Good luck. Linode.com slash coder. Go there to get $100 in 60-day credit and you go there to support the show. If you just need a simple personal server for a blog or a portfolio, maybe a game server, or you're looking to set up a VPN you can trust, Linode has you covered. But if your business needs something that's reliable and can scale when you go viral, well, Linode can help there as well. In fact, they reliably serve millions of visitors every single day. And unlike entry-level hosting services that lock you into their platform, Linode gives you the full backend access and customize so you can control your server in a way that fits your needs. And over time, I've only had to do that a couple of times where I've really got down to the metal, but I've always been impressed with what they let me do and what they trust their users with. And their DNS manager allows you to easily switch your domain over to a new server. You can manage SSL certificates, and all of the tooling is open source. Their backend is fast. They have 11 data centers for you to choose from. In fact, they could be perfect for a multi-cloud strategy in that regard as well. So why not try that $100 to test it out? Maybe use it as an opportunity to performance test your network because they have 40 gigabit connections coming into their systems. So you could really test things and learn about things. And they have tutorials to help you get it going, like with something like iPer, for example, if you do want to do some diagnostics. We use it for everything we've deployed in the last two and a half years. And with pricing 30 to 50% cheaper than other major cloud providers, it's kind of obvious why 66% of companies out there are looking to save money with a mix of alternative cloud providers instead of relying on just one locked-in hyperscaler. Go check out Linode, support the show, and get $100 to kick the tires. Linode.com slash coder. Do you have a home server? The concept maybe is a little normal now, especially for developers or people in IT. But there was a time where Microsoft was trying to sell a product called the home server. And I got a little audio for you guys. This is something really special. Picture Microsoft trying to convince the general public that they need a server at home. Daddy and I brought home a Windows Home server to help organize our family. What's that? Well, Billy, a server is... Me! I'm a stay-at-home server! Wow! Let's go, Billy. I'll show you what a stay-at-home server is all about. I'll have him home by dinner. Eh, keep him till morning. Servers work in offices, helping to connect and protect the information of the people who work there. Why don't you work in an office? Your home is my office. I work for your family, doing the same types of things that those servers do in the office. They think they're so special with their striped pantaloons and business jargon. Staying home is a full-time job! <sighs> okay, let's go. Now with Windows Home Server, your grandma can see pictures from your last soccer game she missed. She had Bridge Club. Well, Grandma did lose some dough on a pony named Bridge. I love ponies. So does Grandma. So that was Microsoft's, like, convince you to buy a home server ad. 
from back in the day. And I got one of these things. Did you ever see these? They were about a book tall. They weren't very big and you could stuff several drives in them. I mean, I know about the meme, but it was a typical Microsoft thing where they tried to work with a few OEMs. So HP put out a bunch of hype. A couple of others did. And then Microsoft, I think, worked with HP to produce this home server. And they even did a special version of Windows Server where they pooled the disk together and they created media shares. And it's how I could stream videos to my uh, PlayStation for a bit. And uh, the product wasn't really that bad, but only about two years in or so, Microsoft eventually killed it, even though a, a rather large community grew up that was deploying and developing applications to run on it. And there was a whole ecosystem being created. But Microsoft just felt like they couldn't convince the public to run a home server. And now here we are, you know, some seven or eight years later, maybe 10 years, and self-hosting and people running things on a Raspberry Pi or a spare PC is more popular than ever. You have things like Plex and there's a ginormous category of open source applications just for the purpose of running on people's home network on their home server. So do you have anything like this at home? Uh, kind of. I mean, it's not not used for the family, but I have like a Mac mini build server. You don't throw like Plex on there or something, you know, just see. No, I, I always want to get into the Plex thing and then I'm too lazy to actually. Oh, it's, oh, it's great. It's great. Jellyfin, also quite great. Free version. Which one is Jellyfin? Jellyfin uh, is essentially a community rebuild of like Plex without the subscription parts. Oh. Yeah. And I think Plex has a little bit more polish. But Plex also has to kind of go down the rabbit hole of trying to look legitimate. So they're trying to do lots of partnerships with junky movies and streaming stuff. And Jellyfin doesn't bother with any of that. Just let you stream your stuff on your server. Jellyfin's like, put all your pirated shit on me and it will be fine. Great. But something that I've been wondering, and I think this would be something the audience probably could give us some feedback on, is I'm considering taking a box and just setting it up as a, as a VM server. Probably using something called Proxmox, which is, which is essentially a Linux distro that just creates a, a tool that you can create new VMs or containers on. It gives you a whole web UI to manage everything, kind of like VMware ESX. Then I thought from there I could do a lot of fun experimentation stuff, but I don't really have anything specific in mind yet. But I'm, that's kind of where I'm drifting towards is a big VM server with some storage and then just spin up stuff, testing on demand, that kind of thing. But I'll put a link to that mommy why is there a server in the house animation video? There's some weird innuendos in there. I think Microsoft was trying to like shock people a little bit to get them to share it. Yeah. The, the mom being like, keep them overnight. I'm like, ah, mm -hmm, mm, I don't know about that. Yeah. And then like the grandma really likes ponies. And then there's like another one later on. Cause grandpa's hung like a horse. Is that where you're going? No, no, I don't think so. I don't... <laughs> oh my God, dude. I, I don't know. I don't know what the implication was. Listen, Balmer did a lot of weird <laughs> I was going to mention, too, that Blizzard just did a big layoff. They have they just laid off like 40 employees or something like that recently. Wow. Yeah. I don't know what's going on. I don't know if it's a, I think it's some like scandal thing. I don't think it's like a financial thing. Aren't they in like trouble again? I heard because they're Activision, right? Doesn't Activision own Blizzard? I think so. Yeah. So they're they're in some kind of. I don't, we, we were the wrong show to talk about this, but <laughs> I got, I could have sworn they got in some kind of like legal issue with, with the state of California. Oh, probably. That sounds about right. That sounds about right. Speaking of getting in trouble in the state of California, a Twitter thread cropped up just a little bit after we recorded last week that were screenshots of emails from Apple execs where they were basically debating, you know, I think we should be getting a 30% cut of Lyft and Uber's membership 
programs, like not just in-app purchases, but the membership programs that, uh, of course, they knew Uber and Lyft were inevitably about to launch. So that is about to happen. June 26, 2018, Apple's going back and forth debating if they should get a cut or not. Like they're the king, you know? Yeah, so it's also Monday. And uh, <laughs> I saw you taking a victory lap. I Listen, I have been a bit of a uh, B-I-T-C-H about this because I was right the entire time. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so they want to put up a little tow booth and be on the iPhone and be like, yo, you're taking money. We'll take 30% of that. Oh, or maybe 15. Sorry. So, you know, around the world, there is a lot of legal action against Apple and Google. Some of it is in regards to how in-app purchases are handled, if third-party payment services are allowed. This has happened in South Korea. It's happened in the Netherlands. And we have some details on how Apple and Google plan to handle this kind of situation where they have to, by law, allow a third-party payment system. And it's truly twisted. <laughs> no. Well, no, it's brilliant. It's it's amazing. It is. It's diabolical. Apple's approach to allowing third-party payments for in-app purchases in the Netherlands will follow Google's approach in South Korea. So like we expected on the show, Google set the framework with their approach in South Korea exactly like we called it. And now Apple is going to allow developers to use these third-party payment systems, but they will still need to pay Apple a fee even if they use Stripe, et cetera. And when you consider that they still have to pay Apple a fee and now they have to pay Stripe a fee, in total, they're going to be paying more. Apple and Google are going to tell developers, basically, fine, instead of giving us a 30% cut, the fee is now 26%. Once you give Stripe their 2.9% and plus 30% per transaction with a worse user experience, you're overall going to be worse off. It's a diabolical way where Apple and Google have figured out a way to meet the letter of the law, but not the spirit. So you essentially end up as a developer paying more. You get a worse user experience, and Apple and Google get to, get to claim that they followed the law and that they're all good. They can go back now to their work. You have to at least appreciate the truly satanic level of elegance in this system. Because you know that they're also going to have some API that all these third-party processors have to use, right? And they will just like they will just like when you get a W two or a ten ninety nine, right? The IRS already knows what you made. There's literally no reason for you to fill out a tax return unless you own a business. But they want to see if you're going to try to lie, and they're going to fine you, right? It's, yep. Apple's just going to like let you fork yourself over, and they may in fact make more money. Yeah. Seriously, like it's it's unbelievable. Yeah, it's just now Stripe also gets a piece of the pie. And your 2.9% goes right to hell the minute somebody whips out an Amex, by the way. so <laughs> Oh, man. Way to go. <laughs> it, it, it's beautiful. The message kind of is, is uh, don't f*** with us because this is what we're going to do and you're going to be worse off. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they, they, they effectively won the Epic case, right? Like, they won. I don't know what to say. They're, they're going to win. We have thoughts about the EU. Miss Newland, if you're there. <laughs> wow, really? I don't know. I mean, is that... Okay, I'm going to do it, but... Uh, the EU. That's right. Nobody's going to get that reference, though. You know, they're just going to think we're, you know... You know, people really don't get it. No. <laughs> I tried to explain to some folks who were over this weekend why I find that so hilarious. And they asked me if I've been, like, doing crack. So that's how that conversation ended. Victoria Newland. That's who you go look up. Victoria Newland. You can look it up. 
Do you know what else Miss Newland would hate? What? AR and VR headsets, baby. That's true. That's very true. Yeah, what do you think of this? The rumor is M1 Pro-like performance, 8K display, and a $2,000 price tag for an Apple AR VR headset. This is coming from uh, German, so of course, everybody in the Apple community uh, snapped up and listened. Uh, I mean, I have not yet been convinced that this is something anybody should want, so. True. I totally buy, like, the HoloLens, the uh, enterprise, like, industrial use for these things, and I think that's very, very interesting and, like, a cool place for development. So gaming would be the obvious use, right, for consumers. Yeah, you know they're going to they're gonna lean on the Apple Arcade developers to port over. Have you played many Apple Arcade games there, Chris? I just, I mean, a couple of them are good. Yeah, a couple of them. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I mean, two yeah. grand is a lot of money. Oh, I agree. The price is the price needs to be six hundred dollars all in, like with accessories that you need and everything. Yeah. First of all, never be six hundred dollars all in from Apple. No, no. I mean, I feel like this is a thing where everybody wants this to happen, and by everybody, I mean Apple and Facebook. And I will go to my deathbed just calling them Facebook because that's who they are. By the way, according to German, he says, "quote I've been told pretty directly that the idea of a completely virtual world." where users escape to, like what they might do in the meta platforms, that's off limits from Apple. That's what German writes. So then what is it? I'll tell you. And I'll tell you why I'll tell you why you're gonna buy it too. Well, because I'll drink too much and have my credit card out, but that's why I'm gonna <laughs> no. buy anything. But yeah, yeah. You know who the customer is? Anybody who bought AirPod Maxes. Son of a bitch. Uh, that's me. Yeah. <laughs> I know. And I'll tell you why. Imagine a world where we've actually kind of resumed travel again. And you can slip on your AirPod Maxes and this headset. So you got like nearly $2,800 worth of Apple gear on your head. But when you're on the airplane, you are in the most awesome, amazing theater with great experience where Apple has worked with content developers and creators to create movie experiences and television experiences specifically for this device. You've got your AirPod Maxes sound with their virtual surround sound, which is actually quite legit. And you've got the noise canceling in there. You have got the Greatest experience for a theater on the plane you could possibly think of. It's going to make traveling so much better in that regard. Secondarily, and I've mentioned this to you before, if you had a real big Zoom culture, everybody was doing video meetings all the time, this would be a lot better experience. And say you could buy some like Android version for $600 and you and I could be in a virtual studio right now. And because we don't actually have to worry about the acoustics of the virtual room, we could even have an audience with chairs where people could come and actually attend a virtual Coda radio event with you and I sitting there. I could have a virtual mixer in there and we could be putting on a show in a virtual reality where you could see my, my movements, my hand. I'm, I'm moving my hands about right now as I talk and you would see me doing that. And, you know, we could flag each other. Like when, when we're doing shows in the studio, the hosts that are in studio with me, we have hand gestures and flags when like somebody says, Hey, I want to get a word in or something like that. Or we can just, you know, look at each other. That kind of, just that kind of unspoken body language while you're recording makes the show flow so much smoother. You don't have people talking over each other. There's no weird pauses. It's just fantastic. And you could get that in a virtual environment and you could have people attend. It could be like a real thing that we put on on the regular. So you kind of think about it in like the context of like company meetings where everybody goes to a meeting or a Zoom event where you're collaborating and, you, and you know, you start thinking it's already happening. I mean, like the Home Assistant open source project was a massive project that's really moving very aggressively. They do all of their content and development planning in VR now as a team. They said it's been very effective because one of the things is that it's lower latency because you're not streaming H.264 video bits. 
you're streaming just the positional data. And so you get a lower latency experience as well. And you can see when someone's looking down at their laptop or doing whatever. So it's, uh, you know, those kinds of use cases. And I could see Apple being particularly good at it with the App Store model. Ugh. You got family sharing. You've got the fact that if you maybe buy it, if you buy the app for your VR headset thing, you also have the iPhone equivalent thing or watch controls. Like you could see them integrating it pretty good with the ecosystem, better than probably anybody else could. So if I make a cup of coffee, are they going to charge me 30%? If if I'm in my VR meetings with you, (laughs) we talked about this last week, excuse me. I definitely could see, because we live in a nightmare hellscape of a time, us doing like, you know, a JB, I don't know, conference, right? Theater. Right, like where we get all the hosts together and it's like, you know, I'm ragging on the BSD guys, even though I don't think they're still around. We have Alan there just so we can make fun of him, right? Just so we can make fun of him. He isn't, the BSD now hasn't been shown a while, but we're going to do it anyway. But two grand for like regular people who aren't producing content that they run ads on, that seems, I don't know, man. It seems like a lot. Way too high. Especially when you know Zuck is going to give this shit away to people who don't know better. You know that's where this has to go. Eventually, there has to be a real cheap device. Something that corporations can afford to buy, you know, four, five, six, a thousand of at a time. Yeah. I mean, and also the idea of doing a VR meeting at the Matt Botter would just end up in a fight about text editors and where the brackets go after an if statement. So I, I don't. Yeah. At JB, it'd be an argument about which platform to use. That's what we <laughs> As you tout Linux from your M1 Mac. Right. And I'm on the pangolin saying how good Mac is. Yes. With my M1 powered uh, headset with my watch. Yeah. I mean, it. Re- yeah, with your watch. It really gets kind of ridiculous. I agree. And I don't, I'm not convinced it's going to be successful. If they could get the price right, I could see I could see a couple of use cases in that regard. I know this sounds really kind of dystopian, but you know, like I have a couple of grandparents. So it's like it's probably their last, I mean, I mean, last couple of years, and I haven't seen them for two years because of COVID. This is not going to happen. This is not likely. But you know, a generation or two, if there's a situation where you could get together as a family and at least be in VR, that might be better. I don't know because we tried the Zoom thing and it it. I just wanted to get off that Zoom call so fast. I don't know. I could see some use cases, but you're right. I, Apple's gonna is gonna price it way too high. But I think you have to have something that feels nice because you're it's gonna be on you. And I think you got to have those 8K displays. And the other thing they're gonna build in is like these. They're gonna build in according to German support for prescription lenses too. Uh, yeah, yeah. See, I don't buy it. You, you just basically took a wish list of what you would want an AR headset to. I think German. Maybe this is what they would like to do. I, you know, I feel like do people have people checked German's record recently. I mean, I know I feel like he's got a one out of three right now, but I might be wrong. I I don't. I mean, I don't really track it, but he's usually close, but not the details he gets and the timing. Although I think he did nail the arm rollout. He nailed the arm rollout. He he has more on the arm. He's he, he's isn't he the dude who made that like super ambitious that by 2023 they're going to be all arm including the pro. I could absolutely see them experimenting. I mean, if you see where this is going, this is how Apple's going to think about it. Where else can we get the App Store? Oh, Jesus Christ. You're right, but it's terrible. Right, exactly. So they're from there from the perspective of where else can we deploy the App Store? Where else can I get my 30%? <laughs> yep. All right. So just taking a breath. People keep telling me that this is where it's going. All this AR, VR stuff. Meta. Metaverse. But is it like, is there really a desire for this? Or is this something that these companies just want to make a thing because they need a new gold mine? Oh, very much. 
Yeah, you know what it feels like is when the TV industry really wanted 3D to be a thing really bad. Yeah, that had that go. <laughs> yeah. Consumers are just not interested. Honestly, when I see the art concepts of the quote-unquote metaverse, it looks so much like the the mid-90s, early 90s information superhighway renderings and drawings that people fantasize the internet might look like. Have you read any William Gibson? Yeah. <laughs> because that's what they're talking about. I have two thoughts, really, on this. Number one is, I think ultimately, something in the middle of what we're looking at is what's going to shake out. I could see with, it seems like there's some trends. You've got remote work. You've got people looking for ways to collaborate better. Like, that's clear. And there's always people looking for the ultimate content experience. Maybe you're in the market to get a 8K television. Well, then all of a sudden, 2000 bucks doesn't seem so bad. So you could see a couple of bits of the market on the high end where there's a justification for it. And it's going to be eventually somewhere in a more reasonable price range, probably the cost of an iPhone. Sure, but there's a big caveat on the price there. That 8K TV is for your entire household and friends. That 2K is per person. No, I'm thinking like somebody who's just maybe, maybe they live by themselves and they got some cash to burn kind of situation. But where I think it gets a little dystopian is it came out yesterday that Walmart has filed for trademarks and other, other things at the patent office for a Walmart cryptocurrency, Walmart NFTs, and the ability to basically sell any kind of virtual good from lawn ornaments to shoes to all everything that they sell at Walmart now they want to sell virtually. Oh, oh no. Nike is planning to start selling virtual Nike shoes that you'll get for your virtual avatar. Here's what I think it is, and this is where it kind of gets a little dark, is I think we look around and things are kind of crumbling. And so the idea is, well, let's just get everybody buying and selling virtual goods. We don't have to make anything real anymore. And we can plug people in. We've got everybody hooked up to the internet now. And they can come do these virtual things. And they can live in squalor and have crap. But they can have a great virtual identity. So we just went from William Gibson to Aldous Huxley. Let's give them the Soma and let them chill out. And then don't you think it's also kind of interesting when people are people are really concerned right now, or a group of people, a lot, you know, not everyone, but some people are very concerned about how they're perceived online how you refer to them. They think a lot about their avatars. Those kind of tendencies seem like they would incline someone to want to create a virtual identity that could be anything they want it to be. Like if I were to create a virtual avatar of myself, I might create it looking like me. But there's probably a lot of people out there that would prefer to look like something else. And this is going to give them that opportunity to participate in a virtual space where they can represent their true identity as they'll probably see it. I could see that making someone inclined to want to just live in that existence because you could kind of imagine sort of the dissatisfaction when you disconnect from that and you come back to your real life where you're actually that different physical shape or thing or whatever, right? Whatever the difference might be. You know, maybe you like to be a flying cat. I don't know. Are you nine cat? Is that what you are? And then when you get back in real life, you're not a flying cat. And that's pretty, that's pretty boring and disappointing. You have just described a person who is living a horrifically miserable life and probably needs some help. And if you're right, that means these big companies are basically going to monetize despair. They don't already, but... Maybe. Don't you think that's a sad thing? You just Like a sad kind of situation to be in? That's why I hope it, it it's something... It's something more in between. Like it, it, be, it becomes a, a better way for us to connect as a, as a globe 
where we kind of treat each other more like real people. Like, uh, you know, uh, I know Optimus Gray in the chat room because I met him in Denver. Oh, cool. And I, I wonder if we could maybe have more, maybe VR would give us more of that kind of connection. And maybe that'd be a good thing. So maybe there's an upside to it. It, it may not go full Ready Player One, right? Uh, that's just, it seems like kind of, you know, Nike can make unlimited virtual shoes and there's no slaves involved. There's no environmental impact, right? As a company, that's a lot of upside. Yes, but not, not being in the slave trade, <laughs> I assume it is on somebody's Excel sheet. Oh my God, dude, this took a turn. Yeah, I know. I know. And, and so I think that's why Apple is trying to message it right from the very beginning. We're not trying to metaverse here. Remember the 90s when like it was going to be a decentralized network and we were all going to like live in this la 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 happy. We'd have our little digital storefronts. And remember, remember that? Anybody? No. You know, if this were really to happen, don't you think there would just be a counter movement to like embrace real life and exercise? Like you almost wonder if you wouldn't have like a counter movement begin that actually gains momentum. Like nothing ever just happens like this. There's always naysayers and, you know, it just it never is a, never a smooth transition where we just all get sucked in. I mean, I'm of course, there will be a counter movement, but will it be successful on the whole to the mass of the population? No. Ever since we went real hard on Web3, I've, I've been kind of going down the rabbit hole and I've been reading about these different companies and their different initiatives. And there are a lot of big, big players behind some of these metaverse companies and some companies are announcing like real estate and offices, like companies that have recently announced that they're going to work from home only have now also announced that they're opening an office in, in a metaverse. And of course, the metaverse right now is just different companies, virtual reality environments that you got to connect to via an app on an Oculus. Hey, you know what? Fine. Sue me, Disney. We got to do the Jar Jar Coder NFT. <laughs> totally, dude. We, we just have to do it. Let's see if we can get some money. I'll split it. Let's do 50-50. Yeah, let's do it. I'm one day I probably will do it uh, uh, like a JB, not a not a, like a currency, but just a, like a coin, you know, because we did do challenge coins before. But I got to wait for all this to shake out, do something legit. What we should do if, if this metaverse crap actually takes off, we sell the code, the coder robe, right? For your app. Av- oh, of course, man. Th- people can get a robe and you don't have to spend like four months torturing yourself. See, D- dude, we could have we'd have a swag shop that you could visit in the metaverse. Absolutely. I could have a creepy little room that's all Alice in Wonderland themed. Yep. You buy the robe on the back end. It's an NFT kind of thing. But as an end user, you know, you don't ever know. And the price of the robe, we make it like the blockchain, like crypto. Sure. Gets more expensive as people buy it. Thus, we incentivize people to buy it early. And for every 200 robes sold, I will find a Snow Leopard disc, digital NFT one, of course, and send it to you. Right. Yeah. We wouldn't want a physical one. We'd clutter things no, up. No, those are mine, and I snuggle with them when I'm sad. I think this is brilliant, you know, and everybody can get their robes and hold, and then uh, one day they'll be worth millions. No, they won't be worth anything because the planet will die, and all these servers will go down, and we'll all just realize this was just data, bits, ones, and zeros and servers. But hey, listen. You know, actually, maybe the only thing that survives, you know, somebody will, some, some Alien. aliens will come by, they'll power up the server, and it'll be all our virtual crap that survived, and everything else has fallen apart and degraded. <laughs> wow. Oh, uh, wow. Well, anyways, don't you want to keep this going? CoderQA.co to join our membership program. You get access to the Coderly Report, which is coming up. We're about to record one. You support the show, and you get an ad-free feed. And if you are a fan of the network and you want to get all the shows ad-free, Go to jupiter.party. For the cost of just two memberships, you get every single show ad-free. You also get the Linux Unplugged full 
live stream show, and you get Linux Action News ad free at jupiter.party. Well, Mr. Dominic, is there anywhere you would like to send people this week? I mean, therapy? I don't know. No, uh, go to uh, <laughs> the go to the madbotter.com, hire us. We do all kinds of stuff. <laughs> I'll say go over to Coinbase and buy yourself some crypto suckers. No. Um, <laughs> head over to uh, coder.show slash 449 for links to what we talked about today. Your feedback is a huge part of the show. We appreciate that. We got a contact page over there. And our RSS feeds, including links to a lot of popular podcast apps, right there. You just hit that and start listening. Get the show every week. We do record live. If you'd like to join the live stream, we do that on Mondays at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern over at jblive.tv. Thanks so much for joining us on this week's episode of the Coda Radio Program. See you right back here next week. <laughs> <laughs>